What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Lily Nichols on the line, and we dive into all things prenatal nutrition, uh, postpartum nutrition, breastfeeding, pretty much just everything you need to know about having a baby, especially one when you're following a low-carb or ketogenic diet, what you need to do for the baby's uh, livelihood and benefits, what you need to do for your own best interest, and how to optimize for all of that. So, very interesting conversation. This is a somewhat controversial topic, but I learned a ton, and I'm just excited to see this becoming what is recommended for our future generation. So without further ado, sit back, relax, hope you enjoy this podcast with Lily Nichols. And we are live. Lily, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Robert? I am doing wonderfully well. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about a few different things. I just got back from a conference and uh, the Keto Summit, and a large part of the conversation around the speakers was keto and pregnancy and, and nursing and breastfeeding and all things low-carb as it relates to you know having babies. So I think this is a, is a relevant conversation for sure. Definitely. First of all, give me some back st- story on what got you into this space. Like, what brought you into to low carb? And what made you gravitate towards like prenatal, uh, postpartum, all of this? So, gosh, it depends on how far you want me to go back. But um, I, I was more introduced to the ancestral nutrition scene pretty early on, actually, before I even uh, went through my training as a registered dietitian. So, that certainly um, colored the lens through which I see nutrition and nutrition policy and, and all of that. I got into prenatal nutrition later on after I was already a registered dietitian and I was actually working mostly with people with gestational diabetes. So diabetes that's first diagnosed or first recognized um, during pregnancy. And that's where I really started getting more into the low carb side of things because I was seeing how poorly the conventional guidelines for gestational diabetes actually worked in clinical practice. I mean, it just, it didn't work. I mean, people's blood sugar would sometimes get worse when they'd follow the guidelines, which makes complete sense when you understand physiology and you understand how, you know, carbohydrates affect the blood sugar. But it was, you know, I was kind of a um, an unusual dietitian in that I was questioning the guidelines and looking at research and suggesting an alternative and uh, recommending a lower carbohydrate intake. And really, it was that experience that led to me writing my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and then eventually later on also writing Real Food for Pregnancy. It was that there's just so much that's out, out of date with our nutrition guidelines and especially with prenatal nutrition, and we can just we can do better. I feel like there's just this massive amount of just sheer ignorance with, you know, mothers, up and coming mothers with regard to nutrition. I mean, there's like a disconnect, I think, because honestly, there's a disconnect even not talking about pregnancy, but like the, the community as a whole, you know, this keto low carb movement is relatively new in the grand scheme of its uh, impact on the a larger population size. And I feel like people are just now starting to kind of put two and two together with how this can impact the the first few weeks uh, of pregnancy and have like a dramatic effect on the newborn throughout their, honestly, their entire life. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's no fault of people being, you know, concerned about whether it's safe or not in pregnancy. I mean, really of all guidelines that like people do not want to touch with the 10 foot pole, it's pregnancy, right? Because there's just a lot that we don't know. You don't want to mess anything up. And like, as a, as a mother, when you find out you're pregnant, you know, you're like, Oh my God, I don't want to screw this up. Right. I don't Mm -hmm. want to, don't eat something that's like going to hurt my baby or do something wrong. And so going against the guidelines is naturally scary, you know? And so I, I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's something that's going to change. What I try to do is just to empower people with, you know, evidence-based information, updated research, so they have a better idea of what's safe, what's not, what's the best way to go about this. Could could you kind of give some some foundation as to what the the current guidelines are from a high level view? Like, what would people expect to see if they're diving into the literature now? 
they're about to you know get pregnant or they're working towards it, they're trying to get some preliminary information like what are the current uh, guidelines of standard of care standard of care is in terms of macronutrients 45 to 65 percent of your calories coming from carbohydrates um, it's relatively moderate in protein and it's also very low fat i mean it has to be in order to comply with the high carb uh, recommendations you'll also see in terms of gestational diabetes that they might recommend a slightly lower carbohydrate intake relative to that 45 to 65 percent but they also warn you that you cannot go lower than 175 grams of carbohydrates per day otherwise it's dangerous for your baby so they say so what you end up with is a diet that's very heavily based on grains and starches um, you kind of have to do that in order to get to the high carbohydrate recommendations they have um, not only that, but they push those foods quite a bit. They recommend um, limiting your animal food consumption, especially um, fatty meats. Um, they recommend low-fat dairy, not full-fat. Uh, artificial sweeteners are a-okay. Um, added sugars are fine, just not too much. Um, refined grains are fine, as long as it's not more than half of your grain intake. I mean, that's, that's really what we're working with here. So as you can see, there's a lot of room for improvement in that information. Is there any like literature or research that points uh, to why it would be beneficial to have a low dietary fat intake? Like, is there, like, what is their argument, basically? The argument on that is primarily from the standpoint of this is what the national guidelines are, and therefore it is also safe for pregnancy. So they'll pull like the heart disease card, um, and any of the like epidemiological studies linking fat intake to potential health problems, they'll, they'll pull those. But really, there's not a ton of research that's done directly on pregnant women themselves. We have a fair amount of rat studies, so they'll pull from animal studies. But if you look at the animal studies, you'll find that there's actually very few of those animal studies that control for the quality of the fat that's in the diet. So when you do actually find those rare gems where they can control for the quality of fat, in other words, they're not just like loading up the rat chow with a whole bunch of vegetable oil, for example, mm -hmm. you actually see different outcomes. In other words, like there was one study that I cite in Real Food for Pregnancy, where instead of um, adding a bunch of soybean oil to the rat chow, they give the rats a mix of, um, of fats. It's, it's a high fat chow, but it has, you know, whole food fats, I guess I would say, or unprocessed fats. So there's fish oil in there providing DHA, there's coconut oil, there's walnut oil. Um, and they find that there's actually beneficial outcomes on the offspring versus the ones that are loaded up with a whole bunch of soybean oil. So, um, it, they don't really have a whole lot to stand on in terms of defending low fat intake, not to mention once you start limiting dietary fat, especially in the context of fats that we find in whole foods, you actually significantly limit the nutrient density of the diet. Because if you get like super strict on saturated fat, for example, and you're taking out full fat dairy products from the diet and you're limiting your fish intake because that's high fat and you're limiting your red meat intake because that's high fat and you're not eating any organ meats because those are high fat and you're limiting your nut consumption because those are high fat. You can imagine there's a whole slew of micronutrients as well as protein and other things in those foods that you are also now limiting. And then what's coming in to replace those things you know, it's usually junk. It's usually junk food that replaces those items um, that tend to be a lot less um, protein dense and micronutrient dense. Yeah. And especially if they're trying to hit those carb recommendations. I mean, most people I would have to assume are not consuming, you know, whole food carbohydrates. It's probably more of some, some type of processing that is often paired with a fat. And there are very few carbohydrate sources that are paired with a healthy fat it's almost always like some kind of highly refined vegetable oil or something right. or something similar right right and for a lot of people i think it just serves sort of as an excuse of well i need to eat for the baby so i'm the doctor said i need to eat more carbohydrates so i'm not going to feel bad about having this 
fill yeah. in the blank, this giant pasta meal or whatever it is, where, you know, you'd probably have a pretty different response if you were eating more fresh fruit, more berries, more sweet potato, more leafy green vegetables. Like, yeah, those things all provide carbs. So they also provide a lot more nutrients than the white flour that goes into making pasta, right? So there, there is like a, a place for a discussion of quality of carbohydrates as well, for sure. Totally agree. And, and you brought up a good point there. I feel like a lot of people are, are confused with the uh, amount of caloric increase that actually is necessary for growing a baby. It's not necessarily eating for two, like a lot of them say. It's like at the at the height of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like you don't need more than about 250 calories uh, over what you're currently consuming. Yeah, it depends on the the research paper that you're reading on it. So some will say about 300 calories, some will say 500 calories, depending on like the weeks of pregnancy. There are some estimates, though, that suggest it's actually lower than that, which is primarily because most pregnant women are reducing their um, their physical activity. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you're like taking out a place where you'd be burning energy. So some places put the increase in calories as little as 70 extra calories per day, though. I think most people kind of air around 300 ish per day. And it's right. It's not that much more. There's one, um, researcher who I love. I quote them in my, in my book. Cause they say it's not eating for two. It's eating for 1.1 and, Calorically, it really is. I mean, there's a lot of micronutrient needs that go up pretty significantly. Um, But calorie wise, you don't really need that much more food. You just want to be focusing more on nutrient dense foods. So it's even more of an argument against, you know, bringing in a ton of processed carbohydrates into your diet, which by definition are not providing you anything other than pure carbohydrates, right? There's no micronutrients in there. Um, beyond maybe what they might have fortified into white flour. And I may totally be butchering this, but isn't it something like the uh, like glucose can cross the, the placenta, but, but insulin can, or did I get those totally backwards? You got it correct. Glucose crosses the placenta. Maternal insulin, whether it's what her body produces or if she's somebody with diabetes who needs to take insulin, neither of those cross the placenta. So... Basically, from a high-level view, if someone's consuming a bunch of highly refined processed carbohydrates, that inherently raises the blood glucose of both the mother and the uh, the baby. There's the baby's not going to be able to keep up with the insulin demands and, and needs, and then as it tries to, it's basically setting itself up for uh, gestational diabetes. Uh, yes. Like most of that is correct. Yes. So the, the blood sugar does cross the placenta. The blood sugar of the mom does raise the blood sugar level of baby. Um, early in pregnancy, when the baby's pancreas is not yet developed enough to release its own insulin, elevated blood sugar, at least beyond a certain threshold, particularly when you get into like the over 200 Um, range is actually a teratogen. It's something that can cause birth defects. And so for people who have like overt type one or type two diabetes coming into pregnancy, that's not well controlled. This is why there's such a high rate of both malformations and also fetal loss, just miscarriage usually happens pretty early on because the blood sugar is actually toxic to the baby. As you get further along in gestation, And by the way, that stuff is not a concern really for like the average person. This is like pre-existing diabetes. I just want to throw that that out there so people don't get all like super freaked out, (laughs) Um, especially because the first trimester is when so many people are nauseous and carbs are one of the few things that can settle their stomach. Um, But in later pregnancy, once the baby's pancreas is developed enough to produce insulin, then what you see is you know, a high blood sugar load coming in from mom, if her blood sugar is high, that will signal the baby's pancreas to produce lots of insulin. So you end up with babies that have both high blood sugar and a high insulin output to try to combat it. And that, yes, does change that baby's development. It can lead to a larger pancreas because they're producing so much extra insulin. It can lead to um, higher fat accumulation over the course of the pregnancy, which then, of course, affects their birth weight. It can also lead to hypoglycemia at birth, which a lot of people are like, wait, why hypoglycemia if they were exposed to 
high blood sugar, but you know, their little bodies are working overtime throughout the pregnancy to like keep their blood sugar at a healthy range. So if they're producing a lot of insulin and they're expecting a high blood sugar load, you give birth, you cut the cord and quite literally cut that constant supply of sugar. Well, their body is adapted to a high sugar diet. So their insulin production is still going to be high. Those babies are not born fat adapted, which a normal healthy newborn would be. And so they crash, their blood sugar crashes. And that can be, you know, a, a life-threatening situation. This is why there's, you know, so much medical concern about diabetes in pregnancy is because you do see these cases where if things aren't well managed, it, it can actually be a dangerous situation um, for the baby. It's, it's pretty scary, really. Like, I feel like making uh, these nutritional recommendations more known i mean it's i'm thinking about like the next generation of kids i feel like this has such a lasting impact and if we can just and, nail this yeah. down it could literally change the the future it, it it can and just to throw out some other statistics if we're going to be scary for a minute um there there is data showing that babies born to mothers who have uncontrolled blood sugar in pregnancy face a six-fold higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes or becoming obese by the age of 13. And there's actually some other data suggesting that that, uh, that likelihood is actually increased 19-fold um, in children who are born to mothers who are either, they have gestational diabetes or some type of diabetes, but are also overweight and obese. It's like this double whammy effect where it really has a a potential negative outcome on their metabolism long term. So, you know, people ask me like, why is there, why is diabetes on the rise? And we, I mean, there's a ton of data, it's called fetal programming or intrauterine programming. There's a ton of data showing that there's epigenetic effects when our, our you know, developing babies are being exposed to, you know, messed up metabolism and super high blood sugar in pregnancy. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons we're seeing that type 2 diabetes, which used to be called adult onset diabetes because it typically only developed in adults, is now being diagnosed in children at pretty alarming rates, um, especially in really young children. This isn't just like, oh, the kids are all drinking too much soda and being lazy and not getting outside. Like, no, there's, there's some predisposition there. It shouldn't be developing that young in somebody who was born with a healthy metabolism. So we do really need to bring this information to the forefront because a lot of people just are are not aware that this is a thing and that's a very real thing. There was a, a doctor at the conference this weekend that they said that they had diagnosed, I think, two children that were, I want to say, either 9 or 12 years old, I can't remember which, uh, with type 2 diabetes. And that, to me, is just like heartbreaking because at that age, they don't know the difference. They don't know what they're eating. And honestly, a lot of that's not even a result of what they're eating so much as it was their parents. And that just, it's, it's incredibly sad to me. It's like, I'm trying to be optimistic about the future, but there's so many more people eating the wrong way than those eating the right way. It has this massive compounding effect and the just generational, uh, you know, compounding effect year after year after year. It, it's, I mean, this is why we're, this is one of the main contributing reasons we're in such an obesity epidemic. Yeah, yeah. And they call it the transgenerational cycle of obesity. It's very well documented. And it's, it's really sad, which is why, you know, we really need to be getting to people of reproductive age, people who want to have babies early on, because you can turn this stuff around, you know, we're talking all doom and gloom here, even for somebody who's already pregnant, and maybe they didn't start their pregnancy at an ideal weight, and maybe their blood sugar is a little high. I mean, I have seen firsthand this be completely turned around, you know, blood sugar managed through diet and lifestyle changes, healthy weight baby without any blood sugar issues. You know, we can change this stuff. Um, it's just a matter of getting there in time. Do you think, like if you were to break it down into super easy to digest, you know, matter of priority steps, uh, I think obviously reducing dietary carbohydrate intake uh, prior to pregnancy and through pregnancy would be a pretty major point. Um, I feel like a lot of people, it's not just removal of the carbs so much as just making sure you have the high quality fats though. Cause like as the baby's, you know, developing, especially these first few weeks, having the correct omega three to six ratio, like all that stuff has a pretty 
prominent effect, correct? I mean, all of it contributes, of course. Um, it is the challenging thing is if we're talking about like really early pregnancy, the challenging thing about early pregnancy is that most people are hit pretty significantly with nausea. Mm-hmm. And by default, even the most diehard low carb people often cannot stay low carb during the first trimester. So there's something physiological going on um, even beyond like the morning sickness, but just like food aversions to meat and, and all that, that pushes people temporarily to eat more carbs. So I don't think we need to pathologize that. There's a lot going on with the thyroid, with your morning sickness, with the placenta growing, um, and baby really like at that stage at like embryogenesis stage, it's being fed by the, the lining of the uterus more than it is like, you don't have a direct blood connection. Um, until the placenta is developed, there's no like delivery of maternal blood to the embryo. Mm -hmm. It's actually being fed through the endometrium of the uterus. So it's not until like 10, 12 weeks or so that you start to see, you know, what you're eating be directly, um, flow into baby, so to speak. Does that make sense? I'm kind of butchering this to try to keep it like as simple as possible for the listeners, but I just don't want people who are in the first trimester to be like, Oh my God, I'm ruining my pregnancy because I'm eating more carbs right now. Like you're going to be fine. Hang in there. What I will say though, is that as you get further along in pregnancy and as those, as the nausea and food aversions fade, you do need to make a concerted effort to get back to eating real food again. (laughs) I mean, we can, there's all sorts of tips and tricks for trying to get through the nausea phase with like, you know, feeling as well as you can. And you can certainly do it eating less processed carbs. It doesn't mean you need to go be eating like bowlfuls of pasta. I mean, usually when the nausea is bad, people are just not eating that much food as as a whole so even quantity wise it's probably not that many carbohydrates even if the proportion of their diet is more carbohydrate dense as you get later on in pregnancy though you do need to really start thinking more significantly about the fat and the protein and getting back to real food and protein needs we know for example go up quite a bit in pregnancy they're actually a lot higher than the current guidelines so there's a study that came out in 2015 which was actually the first ever study to directly measure protein requirements in pregnancy and they found that in late pregnancy the protein requirements are 73 percent higher than the current recommended intake so we need to be pushing protein first of all if you push protein you're automatically going to be getting lots of good healthy fats with it assuming you're eating like whole food sources of protein, your meats, your fish, your eggs, your nuts and seeds, if you eat dairy products, your full fat dairy products and whatnot, right? So you're naturally going to be, that part is going to be kind of like figured out for you just by prioritizing protein. Also by prioritizing protein, the cravings um, tend to, and like the crazy hunger, blood sugar swings, that stuff all tends to come back into balance as well. And there's just probably less like physical room for a whole bunch of carbohydrates. You'll be less drawn to eating a whole bunch of carbohydrates because your blood sugar is better managed. You're not getting spikes and crashes in your blood sugar. So a lot of this stuff is pretty well figured out if you get your protein in line. Um, And of course, there's also a lot of important micronutrients in your non-starchy vegetables. So those are something that I I really push as, as one of the major contributors to your carbohydrate intake where you get, you know, yes, you're getting carbs and yes, you're getting fiber and other stuff, but you're also getting a whole lot of micronutrients with it as well. Is there much research as to, to why women have uh, the food aversion to meat uh, during those early stages? Or is that kind of, is it kind of like a, a gray area? It's definitely a gray area. Um, I have a whole section on nausea, food aversions, cravings in uh, real food for pregnancy, actually. And those are all areas where we're still kind of relying on hypotheses as to why these things are happening. So with the nausea, there's many theories. Um, One of them that's the most compelling is that there's changes in the maternal thyroid happening and your body's actually trying to shunt as much iodine 
to um, to the baby as possible during that stage, and that might be contributing to nausea. With the food aversions, um, there are some theories that it has to do with almost like an ancestral throwback to like before we had refrigeration, all these ways to preserve foods. Some of the foods that were most likely to be contaminated with problematic bacteria, viruses, pathogens that could lead to miscarriage would be your meats and animal foods. Mm. And also um, uh, when you have your, um, what's it called? Your, your wild plants and whatever that you're foraging, you know, we have hybridized a lot of these foods to be different. If you look at a tomato from like 300 years ago, it's, it's not this giant juicy beefsteak tomato. It's like this tiny, tiny little thing. And in those plants, those wild plants, there were actually higher amounts of essentially like anti-nutrients and plant toxins. I mean, plants defend themselves by producing things that will make animals ill. So there's an idea that maybe this aversion to vegetables especially has something to do with, you know, this hunter-gatherer instinct of, you know, that plant might be toxic if you eat too much of it. Like you might get too much of this compound that could that could make you ill or that could harm the baby. And so it sort of draws you to more bland boring kind of foods for a while and maybe that was like a survival instinct um there's more there's a lot more theories on it but it's those i think are some of the most compelling and ultimately we just we don't know why (laughs) and that's that's kind of uh frustrating and as somebody you know who's really into this real food stuff and although i don't eat keto i definitely eat on the moderately low carb side of the coin most of the time you know, it's hard when you're pregnant, you know, I've been through two pregnancies now, I have two kids, and it's hard when you're in that first trimester, and like, you really want to be eating a meal with like, kale and salmon, and like berries for dessert, and you just, maybe you can do the berries, but you just like, can't get the good food in. <laughs> it's, it's really frustrating. Yeah, that's so, it's so fascinating to me, because I, I obviously can't relate at all, I've never been pregnant. Um, but my, my wife, she she's got like this weird meat aversion now and she's not pregnant i mean she just she doesn't like a lot of red meat especially you know fattier cuts of meat um which is kind of like blasphemy within the keto space almost but uh it's it's funny to see kind of where she gravitates towards nutrition but i I, I wonder you know if she's like when she does get pregnant uh you know if she was to have this aversion to all types of meats because she hates seafood so we're already pretty limited on our options um, uh, if she would gravitate more towards like vegetables and some berries and whatnot, uh, obviously I would like her to, you know, prioritize that over a bunch of highly processed carbs because I feel like if she's right. able to stick to that at least, it'd probably be much right. easier to reel it back in in the later phases as opposed to going from processed carbs back to more of a right, keto approach. Right, right, Well, I will say this, two comments on that. One is that... Um, I've observed, and there's no, no like, you know, white paper data on this. It's just anecdotal. I've observed that sometimes the biggest carnivores or, you know, people who are super hardcore paleo, maybe they tend to have some of the worst meat aversions. Whereas I've noticed some people who are more plant-based or even vegan sometimes actually have cravings for animal foods. Like I was talking to one person, I, we did an interview, I didn't realize ahead of time that she was vegan, but she was sharing that in her pregnancy, she craved eggs, oysters, and bone broth. And those are like all three foods that have key micronutrients that would most likely be deficient on a vegan diet. So maybe it has something to do with a person's nutrient stores from like how they were eating pre-pregnancy. So I don't know. You never know. Maybe she'll like want burgers or something when she's pregnant. You never yeah, know. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then the second comment on that is that, you know, there is a way to sort of navigate these nausea phases, you know, as, as best as you can. So for example, like I found that, you know, sour, like sweet and sour sort of things were really appealing. So I'd be like at the grocery store and be like, oh, sour gummy worms. That would be like, so good for my stomach right now and then i'd like look at the back and it's like (laughs) all 
this food coloring and all this nonsense. I'm like, I just, I just like can't, I just can't buy it. Um, but instead I would do like dried tart cherries, which sure it's dried fruit. It's really high sugar, but it's in a whole food source. And I'd pair it with some salted cashews and having that like sweet, sour, salty combo was enough to like take the edge off of the nausea, but I wasn't eating garbage. You know what I mean? Um, same with like, if you, the only thing that's settling your stomach would be some sort of like a starchy carb, you know, like a, a good quality, you know, organic whole wheat sourdough with good grass-fed butter or maybe some cheese on it or something like that is actually probably going to be just fine with, for you unless you're somebody with celiac disease or like a severe gluten issue. Like, yeah, bread is not a super regular part of my diet, but in that context, like that's probably the best choice that you could make for bread right so you just keep trying to like you know every every chance that you can you make the best choice that you can given what your body will tolerate and you know at a certain point the nausea goes away and you can get back to eating normally and it's fantastic but when you're in it it's it's rough and i think it's pretty hard for um for partners who have never been pregnant by default to understand (laughs) like how how could you not want to eat xyz and it's it's bizarre how how your body has other plans if there's like if she was wanting to keep it you know keto throughout like if that was her uh you know goal and she wanted to to do that is there any known research that indicates that you're going to be putting uh your baby at a disadvantage by not incorporating more or just any carbohydrates like starchy carbohydrates or like not necessarily obviously not processed but like rice potatoes stuff of that nature so the the state of research as we have it right now is really limited on low carb and pregnancy so i want to put that out there now we don't have like a randomized controlled trial of people who are like eating keto versus eating high carb and pregnancy and comparing outcomes Um, So where I take it from is reverse engineering what's going to provide optimal nutrition for mother and baby from what we know from existing data on like, say the protein requirements, like I mentioned, protein requirements, micronutrient requirements. Um, Moreover, in defending my stance that a lower carb intake is actually okay. Um, I had to do a significant amount of research discussing ketosis in pregnancy and whether or not that's actually a pathological state or not for a pregnant woman and for her baby. Mm-hmm. So from, from that stance, as long as you are meeting the micronutrient and protein requirements of pregnancy, you're probably going to be okay eating a lower carbohydrate intake. Now, you don't have to necessarily go keto to the point of super super restricted carbs just for the sake of going keto the the pregnant body is already really primed to go into nutritional ketosis very quickly so you'll see it pretty frequently for people now that like blood ketone monitoring is a thing which like it wasn't a thing really even like a decade or two ago like now you can get like home monitors for it and everything people who had previously been monitoring their ketones and been like, oh, it takes three days or something for me to go from like regular high carb eating to being in ketosis. You'll see that switch within like a day or half a day or even within hours in pregnancy. The body just naturally very readily goes into ketosis. You don't have to push it into like deep ketosis or whatever people want to call it by being as low carb as you would be outside of pregnancy. You'll probably be in and out of ketosis when you're eating 100, maybe even 150 grams of carbs, depending on your metabolism. So people don't need to be aiming for like 20, first of all. Um, Second of all, I think there's a couple things that can worry me about keto and pregnancy. And one of them is when people are trying to limit their protein in favor of high fat protein. Mm, Pregnancy is not a time where you should be limiting your protein intake at all. Um, And so that study I mentioned is a perfect example. So if your version of keto means limiting protein, don't do that. (laughs) 
if your version of keto means that you are to the point where you are restricting your non-starchy vegetable intake, your nut intake, your low carb dairy intake, like say Greek yogurt, which might have what, like eight, 10 or so grams of, of carbs in a serving. Um, if you are limiting whole foods in order to comply with a specific carbohydrate goal, that's where we tend to get into trouble with the micronutrients. And that's the part that can worry me about keto, which is why I'm usually more about like a moderately low carb intake. Um, you can totally get by in pregnancy just fine without grains. Although I do show in my books, like how you can incorporate them in moderate amounts and be okay in terms of your blood sugar. You can absolutely incorporate legumes into your diet in pregnancy. And I think there's far more from a micronutrient standpoint, there's far more rationale for including those in your diet in pregnancy than grains, for example, you get like a lot more protein, they're really high in folate. There's just a lot of micronutrients and legumes. If they jive with your system and digestive wise and all that, then yeah, incorporate those. Um, but I think it's really about being picky and choosy about which um, carbohydrate sources you're going to be including um, and not getting so, so, so obsessed with like complying with a carbohydrate goal that you're then resulting in like a lower quality diet, which sometimes happens. Yeah, totally, totally. I feel like, uh, I mean, our version of keto at least definitely emphasizes super nutrient dense foods uh, over yep. anything else. So I feel like she would be good in that regard. Um, the iodine though, like what, what are some micronutrients that you typically see people deficient in uh, just in general, especially if they are following more of a low carb or keto approach, like she doesn't really eat seafood. So iodine would be definitely one, but I feel like there are probably some that are worth supplementing with just to kind of hedge your bets or is that necessary? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. So with folate, for example, folate is really important to fetal development, especially the developing um, brain of the baby and particularly is important preconception as well. And a lot of the major folate sources, people always think of, grains and you know they're fortified into white flour they fortify it with the synthetic version folic acid but you can get a lot of folate in liver legumes leafy greens and avocado and three of the four are low carb legumes of course have more carbs although a pretty significant portion of that is fiber as well so you know it can totally work within low carb to meet your folate needs but if you're not regularly eating from those foods you might be a little low in folate. That's one that I tend to see show up on um, micronutrient analyses. Same thing with magnesium, particularly for people who aren't eating a lot of um, leafy greens. For the seafood, like you mentioned, um, you're definitely looking at potentially an iodine issue. Um, there's a lot of selenium also in seafood, which you could make up in other places, but it, it just contributes pretty substantially. Um, I've found, and also your DHA. So mm. seafood is going to be your major source of that omega-3 fat. You can get some DHA as well as iodine actually in eggs. So that could be a potential source, but you're probably not going to meet all of your needs, at least for DHA um, from eggs alone. So that would be something where, and I think most people in general, they're just, people aren't eating all that much seafood these days. So I do think there's a place for an omega-3 um, supplement that provides DHA, which would either be like a fish oil, krill oil sort of situation or an algae-based DHA. Uh, in terms of the iodine, since so many people don't consume much seafood in the US, the major sources of iodine in the diet are actually eggs and dairy products. Um, you will find much more iodine if you're eating like seaweed. So if people do seaweed snacks and sort of make their own wannabe sushi situation, I really like um, avocado with a little sea salt rolled up in one of those nori sheets. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, that'll give you a ton of iodine, right? But if you're not doing that, you're really looking mainly at your eggs and dairy products, which then means if you're not eating much of those, there's quite a few people who don't want to consume dairy or maybe you're not having that many eggs. I mean, that's something that you'd be 
relying on your prenatal vitamin or potentially a, a separate uh, supplement for. So that's, I mean, those are just a handful of them. I go through um, supplements in quite a bit of detail in uh, Real Food for Pregnancy. One that almost everybody needs is extra vitamin D, unless they live in like a super warm southern latitude and get a ton of year-round sun exposure midday without sunscreen, which is like a really small percentage of the population. So unless you're a lifeguard, you're probably going to need extra vitamin D. It's a good one to get your levels checked by your doctor and uh, and to supplement accordingly. Are there any particular like preliminary uh, you know tests, whether it be blood work or micronutrient tests that you would recommend? Or is it kind of just a good baseline for people to, to take several months out from before they plan on trying to get pregnant? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll cover some, some basic ones that you can ask like any conventional practitioner, and then we can talk a little more um, detailed sort of functional medicine stuff. But in terms of preconception lab tests, I would definitely get your vitamin D checked, your um, iron status checked, and ideally not just your hemoglobin hematocrit, but also your ferritin levels. Um, and a thyroid screening, ask for a complete thyroid panel, one that also includes antibodies, not just your TSH or your T3, T4. You want like a full picture of what's happening because there's quite a bit of subclinical thyroid issues going on in the population, especially women. And that's one of the leading causes of um, unexplained miscarriage actually is underactive thyroid. So that's one I, I really suggest getting um, checked ahead of time. And then finally, in terms of things you can ask your uh, conventional doctor for, uh, your blood sugar. So just a hemoglobin A1C, which checks your average blood sugar over the last two to three months or so, that can give you a lot of information on where you're at, how your blood sugar management is going into pregnancy, and whether or not you need to keep gestational diabetes as closely on your radar or not. Um, they've actually found that people who have an A1C of 5.9 or greater, which is in like the low to mid pre-diabetic range, the chances that they'll fail a glucose tolerance test and be diagnosed with gestational diabetes is 98.4%. So if you're hovering close to the pre-diabetes range, which the cutoff is 5.7, you want to really have have your blood sugar on your radar and, and do everything you can to keep that within a good range leading into pregnancy. And that, of course, would be moderating your dietary carbohydrate intake, first of all, um, and also, you know, exercise as well. In terms of the, you know, more advanced testing leading into pregnancy, I mean, you can go, you can get super detailed into this stuff with a functional medicine practitioner if you want. You could do a micronutrient panel, and there's one through Genova. There's also a SpectraCell. You could look at like your omega-3 index. A lot of that would be covered by those last two tests I mentioned. Um, you could look at you know some specific uh, genetic issues. So you could screen for MTHFR, for example, um, which can affect your body's ability to metabolize folic acid and let you know how much you want to prioritize, you know, folate in your diet and which types of folate to look for in your supplements or not. Um, there's definitely other places that you could go if you have a, a practitioner who's really up to speed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, this, this is incredibly fascinating because I feel like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself kind of the biohacking. Like I like digging deep into all these different variables and I don't know, this is it's interesting to hear what all the options are out there. Yeah. Um, what about like leading up to like the actual moment of birth itself? Like, is there any acute dietary guidelines or anything that would impact that finite period of time? Or as long as your foundation is good, you're solid. That's a good question. Um, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question in an interview before. So the the days leading up to birth that that's kind of what we're talking about mm -hmm. so the thing about and you're talking about lab tests or just like what you can do in your life yeah and more so the latter like what can you do in your life just to optimize okay 
because I was going to say lab tests get really tricky in pregnancy because you have so many extra fluids on board and there's like so much shifting that all the reference ranges are basically wrong. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's hard to test really anything super reliably um, that late in pregnancy. But lifestyle wise, I mean, eating as well as you can and particularly trying to keep your blood sugar in a good range, which usually is, is much easier in late pregnancy because you don't have the food version thing going on. That actually can be important in people who have um, blood sugar issues. So remember I talked about how a newborn could go hypoglycemic if the mother has had consistently elevated blood sugar. They've actually found that the likelihood of going hypoglycemic is tied to a mother's average blood sugar in the last 24 hours leading up to birth. So if there's a time to be, you know, especially cautious about your like sugar and refined carbohydrate intake and all that, it seems that the days leading up to birth would be an important time to have that in mind. So gotcha. um, don't be like, oh, it's the end of pregnancy. I'm going to go crazy. Like it might be even more important to, to dial it in a little more in that last, that last step. I would also say that, um, you know, your, your body is really preferentially in ketosis at that late in pregnancy. You'll probably be in ketosis during birth. You'll probably be in ketosis um, after labor, after delivery as well. And so you may as well just go into it being fat adapted. Baby's going to be born fat adapted too. <laughs> so you may as well eat all the good nutrient dense real food do do as best you can leading up most people during labor i mean it depends but i would say not most a lot of people during labor are not really able to eat anyways you're probably going to be too preoccupied in this weird weird mind space that is birth um so you may as well go into it being fat adapted where your body does quite well being fasted gotcha that makes total sense um, this is less to do with nutrition, more so just birth itself, but given the option, it's much more preferential for the baby's overall well-being to have vaginal birth as opposed to a C-section because the mucus, I forget what the, the long-term benefit is, but can you elaborate on that some? Yeah. So the benefit of a physiologic birth, um, you know, if it's possible, because not all things are within our control and birth is one of those things where really it's not 100 percent in your control you just best laid plans stack the deck in your favor and and deal with what comes at you but if all goes as planned and you're able to have a physiologic vaginal birth your there's a lot of benefits to baby it helps to you know clear the lungs of fluids because there's a lot of pressures they're being pushed out it also inoculates their uh, gut their sets up their microbiome with the mother's microbiome. So if you're taking, you know, good care of your, your gut and your digestive health and, you know, consuming fermented foods throughout your pregnancy, if at all possible, avoiding antibiotics um, during pregnancy and at birth, you're also passing on those beneficial microbes to baby. And that's something that there's a significant amount of research on the effect on the microbiome and thus the child's future risk of allergic disease, uh, digestive issues, um, immune system problems, like all of that is better set up by children who are born via a vaginal delivery. Although there is some of that that can be a bit offset by exclusive breastfeeding as well. So it's not, you know, end of the world if it can't happen. But if it does go that way, there's definitely benefits. And speaking of breastfeeding, like the the breast milk, the colostrum, that that is totally ketotic in nature, uh, correct? I uh, yes, and I'll say like yes with a little caveat that you know breast milk does also contain carbohydrates as well. It does contain lactose, um, mm. and then it also contains a significant amount of uh, non digestible carbohydrates called um, human milk oligosaccharides, which are essentially like prebiotics for the baby's gut. Um, but breast milk is also pretty significantly fatty as well. And babies will naturally be born 
in ketosis, um, it takes a bit for the mature milk to come in, ranging from, you know, a day or two to maybe even up to five days. And during that time, they're getting, um, if, if you're, you know, putting baby to breast, they're getting super, super concentrated colostrum, which is especially high in certain micronutrients, especially vitamin A, because they need to build their vitamin A stores. Um, also a lot of antibodies, and it really sets up their, their gut and their immune system really for life. Um, so that's, that's a critical, critical stage where if you're able to get baby to breast or even hand express and feed it to baby, they're, they're getting significant benefits from that. Um, but babies will be in ketosis um, when they're born and they will stay in ketosis actually for quite a while well through the first month of life, but they'll be um, most significantly in ketosis in, in, within the first couple of days um, before mother's mature milk comes in because the mature milk is much higher in in lactose. So gotcha. There yeah. was a, a slide at one of the presentations this weekend where they compared uh, just the, the vitamins, minerals, micronutrients in, you know, actual breast milk versus basically any of the formula options out there and it was just a landslide you know in favor of natural breast milk no surprise uh is there like any next best option or should i mean not all women can breastfeed but what what would you say to women that are kind of in that position of not really knowing where to prioritize the the food for the baby yeah i mean there there are there are formula options that are better. I'm as somebody who has fortunately been able to breastfeed both times. I can't say that I've personally had to dig through which one is going to be optimal or not. I mean, it's, I think the most frustrating thing about the available formulas on the market is many of them don't use the best quality fats, which is really unfortunate. Um, but from my more up to speed lactation colleagues, they usually recommend either HIP or Holly as a formula option. So those might be ones that are looking into. And I'll also just say this since I can speak more intelligently on this topic than I can to formula, which is that the micronutrient levels in breast milk are actually pretty variable and, and reflect many times depends on the nutrient, but for most of the micro, micronutrients, especially your vitamins, the maternal intake and maternal nutrient stores are actually reflective in the levels that are measured in breast milk. And I have like a whole 90 minute continuing education webinar on nutrient content in breast milk and how these factors um, play in. So sometimes, sadly, depending on a mother's intake, her breast milk could actually be low in certain nutrients. And you see this pretty consistently in vegan mothers who are not supplementing with vitamin B12. You see the breast milk is deficient in B12 and then the infant will develop a B12 deficiency. You'll also see this with uh, vitamin D unless a mother is either taking enough vitamin D on a regular basis or getting a significant amount of sun exposure, her milk will also be low in vitamin D. So. There is, you know, as we talk about prenatal nutrition, I also want to highlight that it's the postpartum nutrition, the breastfeeding nutrition, that's also super important. Here I'm giving some examples for baby, but also just for, for mother's recovery as well. And it's something that is, you know, just starting to get more attention, I think. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I feel like a lot of people kind of open the floodgates to, uh, you know, less strategic food consumption after the baby's born, but that is mm -hmm. a very important key time as well. Is there like a, uh, is the recommended time for how long you should breastfeed? Has that changed with any new research or what is the, the recommended time now? And, and what would you yeah. say to that? I can't say that that's changed much in recent years. I mean, the official recommendation is if possible, exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life and then continuing alongside introducing solid foods breastfeeding through two years of age or as long as it works for mother and baby. We know from, you know, many other cultures that the, the traditional age of weaning a child completely from breastfeeding is more like age three or four years old, where most people in the States wean quite a bit earlier. But really, the, the longer, the better. 
Um, there's a lot of beneficial metabolic effects for mom, both for her blood sugar, also for her cholesterol levels. A lot of people aren't aware that your cholesterol levels go up quite a bit during pregnancy. This is normal. This is healthy. But your body is actually intending or expecting, I guess I should say, that you'll be lactating. And as you lactate, you are transferring a significant amount of those lipids to baby for their brain development. And you're also using up quite a bit of blood sugar just to make breast milk. It's a very energy intensive process. At the time of exclusive breastfeeding, you're burning like an extra 500 calories a day over being, you know, not pregnant, not breastfeeding. So it's, it's metabolically very healthy for a mom as well um, to nurse. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Is there like, um, I mean, just walking through like a grocery store or food aisle, the, the options for young children with all of the sugary drinks and baby foods that are predominantly just highly processed carbohydrates. Is there a recommendation there as far as, I mean, I feel like some people just assume that since it's a growing baby, they need these, you know, really fast absorbing carbohydrates to allow that growth to happen. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. Yeah. I mean, so I'll preface this by saying that I have currently like a four month old breastfeeding infants and I have an almost four year old. Okay. So, so I'm in the midst of between, of you know, both the breastfeeding side and also a kid who's eating lots and lots of solid foods. And um, what I will say is no, I don't think you can make a strong nutritional case for processed refined carbohydrates. And for kids, especially like they naturally are going to have a taste for sweet and starchy things. And I think it's our role as parents to be giving them the most nutrient dense among those choices. Um, alongside, I'm always doing like a secret happy dance when my son is like gobbling down some beef or some oysters or some salmon or some eggs or whatever really our, our most nutrient dense sources of food for growing baby or even a, a, a child, older child are animal foods, like whole animal foods. And so we, they need that iron and zinc and choline and vitamin A and vitamin B12 and all that stuff for their brain. And that's where you find it. So I don't think we need to like be, you know, our kid, my kid is never going to eat this processed food or I'm, I'm never going to give them carbohydrates or whatever. Like, I think it's totally fine to incorporate some carbohydrates into their diet, but just like adults, try to make it the most nutrient dense source as possible. Right. So whole, whole fruits, no juice, um, you know, roasted sweet potatoes over potato chips. (laughs) Like these are just sort of obvious go-tos, um, as parents that we can ensure that our kids are not just filling up on a bunch of processed garbage. Cause once they taste it, that's what they want to eat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. I was a kid once and that once you have it, you're like, yeah, I want more of that sugary stuff. It's just built into our brains reward mechanisms. It's like we have a whole society adults and kids that are addicted to this stuff. So we do need to be mindful about like how we introduce it. But I also think it's fine to have whole food carbs in their diet as well. Love it. I love it. Where, where can people go to find out more about you and, and get the book? I'm going to have to get a copy for myself. Yeah. So you can find more about me at lilynicholsrdn.com. On my website, I do give away the first chapter for free. It's pretty easy to find. It should be right at the top. There's also a, a freebies page that you can find it on. And my blog's on there as well. So there's, you know, I don't know, 250 plus articles on the site. So take a take a while to peruse. There's lots of good stuff on the site. You can also find me social media wise on Instagram. It's Lily Nichols RDN. And that is currently where I'm most active on the Instagram on the social media front. So hope to see you there. Awesome. I will certainly link out to that. I don't normally ask this question, but I've got a good finish finisher question for you. Okay. Um so what what would be like one thing? Because I feel like this is a topic, a subject matter that obviously people would feel very passionate about. I mean, it's not just about them anymore. It's about their children and their future. 
so what what is one thing that you would say to any mother listening or spouse listening and support to like really open their eyes to how significant this is and what you know like just that the fact that it matters and just I don't know just something that tugs at the heart strains a little bit makes people really realize how important this is but you so, that's a tough question yeah <laughs> so I'll take a moment to come up with a good answer the both preconception phase for both partners since you said since you said both mothers and fathers the preconception phase for both partners and then continuing through pregnancy for the mother there is a huge role for nutrition in imprinting a child's genes you know the whole field is called epigenetics you are setting up your child to either express the good genes, I guess you could say, like to have a, a vital, healthy life or potentially programming those genes to set them up for a greater likelihood of disease later in life, like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, whatever. And it's not just genes. You play a role in that child's future based on what you're eating, how you're moving your body, how you're sleeping, whether you're avoiding toxins and, and all of that. And it's, it's really affects the baby from both partners, not just the egg, but also the sperm. So um, I don't know if that's kind of like a scary thing to end on, but I, I just want to give you a little bit of, you know, this is partially within your control and with anything that's partially within your control, like take it, stack the deck in your favor so you can, you know, set up your child for a good, healthy, long life. Totally agree. I, and I like that. I feel like it's, it's not fair to any one person to just assume they can't have an impact. So any, any chance they can to, you know, do what they can to favor the best optimal child possible. That's what they need to be doing. That's their responsibility. Absolutely. Well, Lily, thank you very much. I have learned a ton and I will definitely be in touch because uh, there's there's still more that I want to learn. So thank you again for taking the time to jump on here with me and I will link out to all of your uh, socials and, and website as well so people can benefit from all your knowledge as well. Great. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>